All right, welcome to another episode of ICU Doc Talk. Today, we are going to talk about obesity um, and obesity in medicine. So, and I, I have to have a, you know, a waiver here. I am not a, a, I'm not an expert in obesity. Um, you know, I'm not an endocrinologist. I, I, I you know, I'm an anesthesiologist and a critical care physician. Um, but I do have opinions about obesity in medicine and obesity in general. Um, I'm not, I'm also not a nutritionist and I'm not a dietitian. Um, those, these are important to know that I'm not these things as I go about and discuss obesity in medicine. Um, so let's go. It's probably, I, I might ruffle some feathers, but I doubt it. Um, uh, anyway, let's, uh, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. And also as I talk about this, you know, this topic today, I, I am, my opinions and thoughts about obesity are always evolving and changing. And I, and I think they are as a society changing, which is good. So I'm willing to be challenged on anything that I say today. And, you know, you should email me, be like, Hey, I think you're wrong about this or that, this or that. And I want to hear it because I'm definitely willing to be convinced otherwise out of my opinions. The first thing I want to talk about is how is the anti-fat bias that is in medicine. It is everywhere. It's every day. I observe it almost every day, the anti-fat bias in medicine by healthcare workers. It is one of these, it's one of these biases that is still oftentimes openly tolerated by healthcare workers. Um, It's one of the last few biases, right? That, uh, you know, it's just seriously, it, it can, it can be so bad. The, the judgment, the, 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 I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard like, People be like, oh, this patient has obesity of, or obesity, a BMI. And I'm going to talk about BMI also, by the way. That's a big part of the discussion. Oh, this person has a BMI of 50. Oh, and then eyes rolling and being like, wow. And I've, I, I mean, I've heard, I've, I've heard terrible comments like, wow, that person's really, really good with the fork. Just these idiotic, asinine comments. I hear them almost every day, almost every day, really. I know that's if you're not in medicine, that is probably that's that's very likely disappointing for me to report to you. But it is true. The moral judgment and the the blaming of people for the bodies that they have, blaming that it's like some moral failing that they are obese, uh, is just deplorable. And I I I hate it so much. I get so sick of it. Um, Now let's 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 back it up a little bit. Let's talk about terminology. So so in the fat positivity community. which not all people that are obese subscribe to, all that stuff. Um, being called obese itself, being labeled as obese, is uh, can be um, a problem for people. I'm going to use the term obesity because we use it in medicine. This is, you know, I talk about medicine here, so I will be using the term obesity. I realize that many people that are obese do not like or or are fat do not like that, and a lot of times in the fat positivity community, um, people like to just be called fat, fatness, fat, you know, because it's fat positivity. Anyway, I, I do recognize those things, but I will be using the term obesity and fat, um, as well. Uh, so anyway, there's just deplorable things going on all the time. Right. And this, and this moral, so I want to be very clear as I go about this discussion, the, there being obese is not a moral failing. (laughs) It is not a failing of self-discipline. Um, fat people can be, (laughs) are intelligent, I, it sucks that this has to be said, but I'm just, it just, I got to lay it all out, right? Fat people are intelligent. Fat people are um, athletic. Um, fat people have sex, <laughs> right? Uh, 
and enjoy it. There's so many, just there's just so many things that there's that are just uh, there's so many biases against fat people that that they're almost this in medicine and by other people and by thin people that they're seen as just this other class of people and it's awful and it's pervasive. I think fatness is extremely multifactorial. The reason people are fat is is it, it's there's a, there's many 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 reasons people are fat most of which are out of people's control. Now, when I say I'm going to ruffle some feathers, I do believe that there is a, a, when people are fat, sometimes it can be controlled by their behavior. Yes, I cannot deny that fact. I cannot deny that fact. Okay, I'm going to roll it out why I believe this. And that's why the, a lot, you know, if you're, if you're part of the fat positivity community, you're, gonna, you're not going to like what I'm saying. You're probably going to be angry at what I say. But I'm not going to deny what I believe is true. Um, so I do believe there is a certain degree of control over w- what someone's body type, what, not someone's body type, fat, the, uh, how much fat someone has in their body. There is a tiny degree of control. But sometimes I think that control completely s- slips away depending on the, situa- the situation. Um, okay, let's back it up. So I have been fat in my life. Okay, so I make uh, TikTok videos very rarely about fatness because it's so controversial. Um, and there, I get tons of backlash. It doesn't really matter what I say. Uh, I have been fat. Uh, you know, people be like, oh, I can't believe this, this doctor's giving this opinion. He's, he's been thin his whole life. No, no, I haven't. I've been fat. I, I, I was fat when I was a teenager. I was fat up into early, early adulthood. I was fat. Um, I know I, I wasn't morbidly obese, but I had the experience of living in a fat body all of my adolescence. So that needs to be said. Like, I know the experience. I'm thin now. Um, and, and I've been thin most of my adult life. But... Uh, I, I just, that needs to be said. I've been fat. I know the experience. I, I, I know what it is. I know I've experienced the stigma, the stigmatization of being fat, the rejection of being fat, um, of not being invited to things because of fatness. Um, I have experienced a little of those things. Now, I've been fat as a man. That is an extremely different experience to being fat as a, as a woman. Way, way, way different. Because for our society, it's okay to be fat if you're a man, but it's not if you're a woman right? That's like the, the unspoken rules, right? Oh, it's okay. You know, our standards of beauty, et cetera, et cetera. Right? It's, it's just, just nonsense. This is awful, awful gender expectations and the terrible double standards we have with gender. So I've been fat as a man, but I have not been fat as a woman, uh, which is an, an enormous difference of societal expectations. All right. Okay. So I'm all over the place here. Um, let's talk about, let's back Let's talk about BMI. <clears throat> okay. So BMI body mass index. Um, is a, an extremely crude measurement that is still used to this day in medicine. And there's a lot of backlash like that we shouldn't even talk about BMI. That we, You know, BMI is not a thing that we should even, that should be even be in a person's medical chart. That's kind of, it's honestly, it's kind of a moot point. It will always be in a medical chart. It is literally um, a dimension. It's literally a measurement. Um, so the problem is what is it imbued with? The stigma that BMI is imbued with. That's the issue. It's not the actual measure of BMI. So BMI is not a measurement of health. It's not. We act like it is in medicine often, and that's the problem. Um, but simply knowing the proportions of a person's body is a useful measurement in medicine. It is. I, 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 again, this is another way I'm going to ruffle feathers. We should still use BMI in medicine. It is a simple, it is a simple measurement of dimensions of, a, of someone's body. So if I'm reading a patient's chart... And I'm thinking, or thinking about the, the surgery or about a procedure I'm going to do in them. Knowing what the dimensions of their body is is useful information. 
simply just knowing the measurements of a person's body. That is useful information. All of the stigma attached to it and the bias attached to it is, is what is bad. Um, and you're not going to get rid of that by stop using by by not using BMI. You can you know, and then there's this other concept that well BMI someone can have a B, high BMI and have a quote healthy body or a fit body, and that is true. Uh, but it is but it is a, it is functionally it is realistically not true at all. Someone with a BMI of 45. If I'm looking up bringing a patient's chart and they have a BMI of 40 or 45 or 50 or whatever, that person is not gonna not gonna be Dwayne the Rock Johnson. They're just they're not okay. They're they're going to be fat. 100% of the time. So it's kind of a bad faith argument. Oh, like you can, BMI doesn't really work because uh, someone can have no fat tissue and have a high BMI. Like, yeah, that's true, but not with the extreme BMIs that we see, the high BMIs. So that that argument just functionally does not hold any water. If someone has a BMI of 40, 50, 60, they have a ton of fat tissue on their body and they have large dimensions. That's a fact. And, and seeing what their BMI, their number is, and then also looking at their height and the weight, that gives you a good idea of what, to, what their body type is going to uh, be like and their dimensions are going to be like before meeting the patient, before putting them in an operating room bed, before bringing them to the ICU, before doing a procedure on them. It's useful information that a healthcare workers do need to know. It, that that that's just all there is to it. It's it, it needs to be in a patient's chart, um, and that's how it is. That's how it should be used. It should not be used for anything other than that. Um, with imbuing, you know, with a you know, applying moral judgment to the to a patient. Uh, so anyway, so um, anyway. Th- talking about the stigmatization of fat of fatness i think from what i've observed people that are fat patients that are fat they are not listened to as much they're not believed by their health by by healthcare by their physicians by their primary care physicians everything about their health is blamed on their weight this this is the problem it causes bias and anchoring bias on people that are that are on the healthcare providers that are treating fat people everything is blamed on their weight so they come with a complaint particularly women, right, who are not believed, who are less believed more than men. And then when they're fat, forget it. And then if they're a person of color, a, a, a fat woman person of color coming into the primary care physician saying they have a, you know, having a complaint about something about their body, they're not going to, the, the chance of that person being believed, particularly if they're going to go see a white, thin man, as a, forget it. <laughs> I have no, I have no faith in that situation. Very, very little. I mean, now I don't want to be like, I don't want to make too many assumptions about people based on their colors, their the uh, color of their skin, etc. But that hypothetical situation, the probability of that patient being believed by their healthcare provider is, I think, is very low. Now, obviously, there's exceptions to all that stuff, but it's just there's there's these terrible setups, and it has to do with biases and blaming health problems on people's fatness. Here's the biggest takeaway. This is what I want you to take, take away from this: you can be healthy and fat. <laughs> You can be skinny and diseased. (laughs) People can be fat their entire lives and be healthy and live a long life and die and not have disease. Happens all the time. Fatness is not disease. Now, that is the controversy, right? And I get called out when I make these videos on TikTok. So the AMA, uh, I think CDC, they call obesity a disease. This is is full of landmines talking about this, but I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to share my un- adulterated opinion you let me know you, you email me and tell me you hate me it's fine um it is i it is really really hard calling fatness or obesity a disease it's really it's a difficult thing to label this as a disease it's it's really controversial and here i'll and, and i'm i, I, I want to get into the meat of it i want to explain why it's so hard to call this a disease and why it's also hard to not call it a, a disease 
<clears throat> so the the you know the desire to call obesity a disease or to make it pathological i i get and but and i guess i should say it doesn't i don't think it actually ultimately matters th- that much i don't think it matters oh it's a disease it's not a disease it's kind of like the the debate i don't, I, I honestly don't think it matters it matters what we do about you know obesity to fatness in medicine which is respect people's bodies and not shame them and know that people that are obese they they can live perfectly healthy lives i i think it's ultimately what matters so it's maybe this discussion is kind of a distraction but i understand wanting it to be a disease um if you are obese and and it's completely out of your control and you've done everything you can to to think of it as a pathology can help you uh um you know, deal with it and, you know, seeking medical advice about it and making it a medical problem to seek medical advice about to help you with it. It was something you want help with. I, I understand that wanting to wanting it to be a pathology. And there are truly patho, uh, pathophysiological states that lead to obesity, like hypothyroidism and, and endocrine, endocrine disorder. So, you know, is obesity, obesity is an endocrine disorder? Maybe it is. I don't know. I'm not, again, I'm not an endocrinologist. The the one of the issues is when you look when you look at the definitions of obese you know the uh, of obesity as a disease the way that it's characterized is always the consequences of the risk factors of obesity that's how it's defined that it's a disease because it can lead to diabetes and cancer and osteoarthritis and high blood pressure and hypertension which are other diseases so obesity is always designed is always when it's described as a disease it's described in terms of the diseases that it can lead to, which doesn't really describe to me doesn't describe a disease, if that makes sense. And I think one of the one of the positives, uh, you know, to counteract of, of describing obesity as a disease by the AMA and the CDC, is that it it can help improve research and um, into the causes of obesity it can lead to improvements in the methods to prevent obesity, um, and and then that can improve patient health outcomes because because the other side of this coin. Um, you know, people that don't want to, you know, fat positivity that, you know, focus on, on healthiness and strength and all those things. The things that I find that a lot of times the fat positivity ignores or doesn't recognize is that obesity 100% is a risk factor for disease. That is the main, kind of one of the main points I'm, I'm trying to make here about this whole discussion. It is undeniably a risk factor for disease. If you are obese, if you carry around more fat tissue, you are undeniably at higher risk for other things, like like the things I mentioned, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, osteoarthritis. And those things can le- have mortality, higher mortality and morbidity, increasing your chances of dying early and having other diseases. That is a fact. Very, very, very well documented. So th- maybe this discussion is moot. It doesn't really matter, I, I, I guess, you know, it's obesity disease. But one, one of the reasons I don't like just personally, I don't like to see just okay the someone with more fat tissue. No, you know they don't have diabetes, they don't have hypertension. You know, just more fat tissue. I don't consider that to be a disease state um, because it because it brings stigma. It brings stigma, right? That's the other. That's the side. The other side of the coin. There's the stigmatization of disease, um, and the the path the pathology stating that that is a pathological state when maybe it's not. If if just having more fat tissue 
without any of the diseases is is a disease state and you call that pathology i don't know it just doesn't seem true to me it just doesn't seem true it doesn't it doesn't seem accurate what is the pa- what is the pathophysiology of that it's literally just having more fat tissue i don't know overall it's probably it's probably a positive thing and i should probably just like not discuss this or care about this anymore meaning <clears throat> calling it a disease or not it's probably a positive thing that it's called a disease because it calls attention to it um, from a public you know funding standpoint and a research standpoint and looks into the genetics and the environmental and the yes the complex interplay of behavioral behavioral aspects that that all contribute to obesity and then which contribute to risk factors which contribute to high morbidity and mortality so it's probably it's i guess it's probably a good thing <clears throat> that it's that it's called this disease um i'm going to shift gears a little bit i want to talk about obesity and ecmo um particularly during the covid pandemic so at so as you may or may not know i i i'm a ecmo practitioner which is a stands for ex, extra corporeal membrane oxygenation which is a heart lung bypass machine that we put very sick patients on and my my major academic <clears throat> institution so there are certain criteria and there's certain contraindications for putting a patient on ECMO. Like um, if I know someone has a, a, ba- a bad brain bleed, I don't put them on ECMO because I don't think their long-term prognosis is good and there's no, it's medically futile to put them on ECMO. Or for example, um, if someone's been doing what's f- chest compressions, we've been doing it, you know, they've been in the field and they've been doing chest compressions for an hour and a half and they come to the emergency department, I'm not going to put that patient on ECMO because they likely were in a flow, low flow state and they like they very, very likely had poor brain perfusion and they're probably not going to survive because their brain is irreparably harmed from anoxic brain injury. I'm not going to put that patient on ECMO. So we, uh, you know, we make this kind of risk assessment when, I, when I'm considering putting a patient on ECMO and if they don't meet certain criteria, then I decide to not put that patient on ECMO. Now BMI is a relative contraindication traditionally to putting patients on ECMO. Okay. This is, this is going, this is dovetailing a little bit with my discussion about disease. Okay. So we don't put patients on ECMO when they, uh, sometimes, it's a, we call it a relative contraindication rather than an absolute contraindication, like, oh, we need to consider it. So some institutions say, you know, a BMI of 40 or 45, oh, we're not going to put that patient on ECMO simply because of their BMI. Okay, and I want uh, to, do you already see the problem with what I'm talking about by calling obesity a disease? Because you're assuming that someone with a BMI of 45 that they're going to have a lower, poorer chance of survivability compared to a counterpart that, that has a lower BMI, simply based on their BMI. Why do we believe that someone with a BMI of 45 compared to 25 is not going to survive, has a lower chance of survival? Let's say that, let's say you take two patients. They are exactly the same. They're totally completely healthy, except one has a BMI of 25 and one has a BMI of 45. Why do we believe that if we put that patient with a BMI of 45 on ECMO, that, they're, that they have a lower chance of survivability. So this all has to do with resource uh, management, right? We, ECMO is a limited resource, and we, we were very selective who we put it on, right? We triage who we put it on because it's a limited resource, and we also don't want to extend someone's life that we don't think has a good chance of survival. So BMI is in this. This is a problem because some, simply someone having a BMI of 45 compared to 25, that does... They can, they can have the exact same longevity. They can have the exact same state of health. They literally can and often do. So we, there's also these other re- reasons. There are, there are other reasons to uh, uh, pause and maybe not put a person on ECMO if they're obese. Like if they have a huge panis 
a panis is like a big fold of flat of, of, of fat tissue that hangs over someone's waistline. That's called a panis. And if that's large, the, there could be technical difficulties of even putting someone on ECMO because we often put ECMO catheters in their groin, in their femoral vessels. <clears throat> so there's that aspect. And then um, there's also problems with running a pump, the ECMO pump, with someone with, if uh, they have a lot of fat tissue around the cannulas and the, can and the cannulas aren't reaching for further far enough into the uh, vasculature, into the blood vessels, because the blood vessels don't grow as if someone gains fat tissue, then you have tr trouble actually even running your pump and then meeting the metabolic demands of extra fat tissue <coughs> and, um, can be challenging as well. So there are those reasons. But I've looked back at retrospective data of people with higher BMIs put on ECMO, they survive at the same rate as people with lower BMIs. Let me repeat that. Looking back retrospectively at the pandemic, people with a higher BMI, they don't die more often than non-BMI when they're placed on ECMO for COVID. They didn't. So, so it's wrong. What I'm saying is it is wrong to just look at someone's BMI and make that as a determination to put them on ECMO. It's wrong. Um, in fact, there are plenty of studies, again, these are retrospective smaller studies, but there's a lot of them that showed that people with obesity actually did better than thinner people with COVID. <laughs> why? So it's kind of this phenomenon called the obesity paradox. So why is that? Uh, 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 one explanation is that um, people with higher BMIs, they have more fat tissue around their chest, right? So they have worse compliance of their chest wall. What is compliance? It's how easily a chest wall moves up and down, right? A balloon is very compliant. A propane tank is not compliant. Just think of it that way. Now, because they don't have a lot of compliance when they're, doing, when they're really sick on with COVID and they get intubated, they can be more hard. They can be more difficult to ventilate. They can be harder to open up their, the little air sacs of their lungs called alveoli. They can have more atelectasis, which is collapsing of those little air sacs. And so their oxygenation can, can appear worse and it can legitimately be worse. Um, and, and so they can appear worse, then you put them on ECMO and maybe they weren't as bad as their thinner counterpart. Additionally, one of the reasons people die from, from I'm getting into the weeds a little bit here, but one of, the, one of the reasons someone can die from ARDS, COVID ARDS, is because of high transpulmonary pressures and gradients, meaning we put a bunch of positive pressure into the lungs and it's not matched by, a, a, by pressure on the other side of the lungs and it causes lung alveolar injury alveolar strain, whatever you want to call it. If someone has, if a fat person has a lot of chest, has poor chest wall compliance, and it's providing a good um, counter gradient to the positive pressure we're getting through a vent, they may have less lung damage from the ventilator, if that makes any sense to you. So not only did, in, in multiple studies, did, obesity, did people with obesity not die as often, but a lot of times they did better than the thinner counterparts. So do you see the problem with putting pathology on high BMI. Do you see what I'm talking about? That is, this is a direct consequence of what I'm talking about. When medical staff see a BMI of 45 or 50 and they think uh, that person will not survive, uh, is less likely to survive than this thinner counterpart. So I'm gonna withhold a life-saving measure because of that reason. Do you see what I'm saying? It's wrong, it's wrong. And this is the stigmatization of disease. And this is why I have an issue with this. And I can't even think of all the other scenarios where this same mentality about obesity might come into play. Um, when you're triaging patients and you're talking about having them come to, for a surgery or come for this or come for that or a certain, and then and then blame, and then withholding a treatment because of their obesity and saying that it's pathological, 
that they must lose weight in order to get this medical. That's a problem. That is the problem with calling obesity a disease. That is where I'm coming from with this. So it's complicated, right? This is extremely, extremely complicated. I think um, I think I'm going to continue this discussion talking about a book that will help. This will also uh, discussing my notes from a book. This will also help me because I'm kind of all over the place talking about this. This will help me uh, just organize my thoughts a little bit more. <clears throat> so I'm going to talk about it's a, it's a book called What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat. It's by Aubrey Gordon. Um, I think she does a she's I don't know she's a big part of anti or uh, fat positivity community. Uh, and this book was phenomenal. You definitely definitely need to read, everyone needs to read this book. It's a really passionate, intelligent. Um, and also scathing commentary about anti-fat bias that pervades every facet of society. Every person needs to read this book. Uh, it's not only learn about objective anti-fat bias, but also the anecdotal and like personal accounts from the author that show you how fat people are subject to just cruel biases and judgment and marginalization and oppression. It's, it is It is unbelievable. If you are not fat, the scales will fall from your eyes and will very likely expose your own bias. Something that happened to me as I was reading this, which is really a groundbreaking book. I think the author makes a really good case that fatness, again, I'm mirroring the author's use of the word fat, um, is it's a distinguishable identity and it's a lived-in experience. That, And this lived-in experience experiences systemic discrimination and widespread cultural stigmatization widespread i don't feel that this minimizes other oppressed groups right this is like uh one of those like critiques about anti-fat bias movement that it minimizes other oppressed groups but unfortunately there is no zero-sum game of identities that are oppressed just because fat people are oppressed doesn't mean that other groups and anyway i don't think there's a crowding out of the market of oppressed groups when you recognize fat people is being oppressed. Anti-fat bias is different from racism and sexism, for example, because its discrimination can apply across sex, across race, and across wealth. And it's tinged with the assumption that there is a deep moral failing on account of the fat person in question. That's one of the main issues with the bias. But as the author does a good job of pointing out, body type is not a meritocracy. But that is exactly how our culture treats body type. In an instant, you know, the unforgiving gazes come to the conclusion about, you know, someone looks at a fat person and they come to the conclusion that about that person based on their body type right in front of them, right? Many people do this. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. <clears throat> the the anecdotes that the, the, this author shares are heartbreaking and they're totally emblematic of, of anti-fat bias. Whether it's an older woman physically removing a melon, like a cantaloupe, from the author's shopping cart because it was, quote, too much sugar for her. Like, just a stranger came up to her shopping cart and took a melon out of her cart and said it was too much sugar for her. Um, or a doctor attributing any ailment to, ailment to her body size. The author is exposed to a panorama of judge and jury everywhere she goes. Um, and then she goes into great detail about the desirability myth, where fat people couldn't possibly be physically attractive or engage in romantic or sexual activities. And, but they do. They do all the time. And because of this desirability myth, fat women are especially vulnerable to unwanted sexual advances and rape because their assailants knowingly understand the system 
to which we are all implicit. And this is the system. Fat rape victims are not believed because they're seen as being less sexually desirable. That's the desirability myth that predators take advantage of, which this author talks about, and it happened to her. You can literally and legally be denied services and healthcare because of your weight. Businesses can deny serving you. Doctors can put weight limits on patients that they will see, right? That's what I was talking about. The media and anti-fat campaigns promulgate the falsehood that fatness is a state of disease. That is, which I think is a, I think it's a falsehood. That it's pathological and all must be cleansed or shamed into believing their bodies are not only bad for them, um, but society at large. From Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign to a talking head pointing to a, quote, headless fatty on the news, all this fat shaming not only destroys the mental health of those that are fat, but has the exact opposite effect. People gain weight in the midst of shame culture and engage in, a, in the very mischaracterization that originated with the discrimination itself, like developing an eating disorder or binge eating. So, you know, if a fat person binge eats, they're not, it doesn't mean they're fat because they binge eat. They're binge eating because of fat shaming, right? <laughs> Think about it. Think about that. Or, or you know, eating in secret. Are they, are they fat because they're eating in secret? Or are they eating in secret because they're shamed about their fatness? So, <clears throat> and I'm repeating myself a little bit here, but this, despite what the CDC and AMA state, again, I personally do not believe fatness or obesity is the disease. A lot of the confusion and judgment in part comes because fatness is not necessary or sufficient for disease. Let me repeat that. The confusion and judgment comes because fatness is not necessary or sufficient for disease, meaning any body type, thin or big, can become diseased with cancer, sleep apnea, coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes, degenerative joint disease, and many other ailments. Also, any body type, can't, top body type can be healthy their entire lives. Simply having lots of adipose tissue, which is what fat tissue is, is not, again, my opinion, is not a disease state. Fatness easily and commonly goes hand in hand with being healthy, as measured by the exact same metrics, metrics you'd use for a thin person. However, Fatness is most definitely a risk factor for not only disease, but also mortality, like I've discussed. With this book, I felt the omission of this fact. The author does not mention this once. She does not mention how fatness is a risk factor for disease. Um, and that could only have been intentional because this author is, is very well informed. So I think that was intentional. And I think it slightly hurt the author's objectivity and credibility, in my opinion, because she should have mentioned that. The author spends quite a bit of time providing evidence that dietary modifications, particularly, quote, calories in, calories out, do not result in long-term changes. The evidence she provides has issues with selection bias, looking at those who have tried to lose weight and didn't. There certainly exists a population of people that have tried to lose weight and they have kept it off. These, that type of person does exist and they don't get mentioned in fat positivity discussions. This population of people is never mentioned in this book which leaves the discussion incomplete. <clears throat> Additionally, you know, just pushing back on the author a little bit. If calorie in, calorie out truly did not result in change of body type, or I should say body mass, then bariatric surgery would result in no weight loss. But bariatric surgery, it, it does. It's extremely effective at, at long-term weight loss in a durable way. So the author indirectly and directly eschews accountability for, for fat tissue. And I sincerely believe she is mostly correct, given how, you know, ancient human genes interfaces with modernly modified food. 
But here's the so here's the elephant in the room. Is there a line between accountability and genes? If such a line exists, where is that line? So given that there is a clear causal correlation with risk of morbidity and mortality that increases with fatness, this is not an arbitrary question predicated on discrimination. It's a clinical question based on fact. Being fat puts a person at increased risk of disease and dying. That's a fact. Losing that fat decreases that risk. That is also a fact. And I will not deny that. It doesn't matter how angry people get at me. It's true. Given the unprecedented landscape that we have, modernly, of access to high-calorie foodstuffs that are literally engineered for addiction, I think this is an extremely hard question to answer about accountability, about people's fatness. People are at the mercy of a market that vies to keep them consuming the same high-calorie and addictive foods as much as possible. And then you pair that with genetic makeup, stigmatization of fatness, diet culture, and the immeasurable impact on a person's mental health. And I think accountability about someone's fat tissue almost entirely goes out the window. I do wish the author had gone into more detail about, about the food and agricultural industry and their complicitness in this. Anyway, it, it, this is a phenomenal book, uh, despite my small misgivings, uh, the incomplete discussion. Um, it's about anti-fat bias and its discrimination and how it's pervasive in our society. It's harmful, it's dangerous, and it's shameful. Um, so I do, I highly recommend you read this book, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat by Aubrey Gordon. Anyway, I think I'll leave this discussion at that. Um, I've, you know, email me at icudrecmo@gmail.com <clears throat> to tell me, you know, to push back at, uh, about things that I've said. And you know, if you want the this podcast audience to get another perspective, your perspective, I'll even you know read you know send me an email about the points you think I'm wrong. And I'll and, and if you want, I'll even read the email here so other people can hear it <clears throat> that listen to this podcast. Uh, and my mind can be changed, as I said. I'm open. Uh, I'm open to this. I, I think, you know, to, to many opinions and things. I think the bottom line is, I, I, there's a lot of things to talk about, but the bottom line is the anti-fat bias in our culture is, and the discrimination against fat people is morally deplorable. It's, and in medicine, and it's, it's, it's uh, inexcusable and it's harmful to fat people and obese, you know, or obese people. And it needs to stop. I don't know how to get it to stop, but I, I totally think fat positivity is a good thing, right? Like, so this author that I talked about, you know, she's gotten, she gets death threats and stuff because people are like, oh, how dare you, um, you know, you're killing people because you're making them okay with being fatness. That's not what she's doing. She's helping people with their mental health. She's helping people accept their bodies. I think she's doing tremendous work. So I don't, you know... Yeah. Anyway, I'll just leave it at that. <clears throat> but I do want to talk about let's uh, let's move on from this topic. Uh, but again, email me, yell at me if you want. Tell me you hate me. I'm okay with that. I can take it. And then uh, and then I will. I'm happy to uh, to continue this discussion on another episode. If you email me and you're like, hey, I want to, I want you to talk about this and this. I want you to read my email and I want you to talk about it. I will do that uh, if your arguments have merit. You know. Um, but I'm very very open to that. Um, and to be calling out, called out about my opinions, because I'll just repeat it again. I'm very willing to be to change my opinions about stuff. One thing I'm not willing to change my opinion about, because it's not an opinion. Well, it's because it's opinion based on fact. Is that fatness is associated with increased risk of disease? That's a fact. That's not something anybody can talk themselves out of. That that can't happen. Anyway, let's. Uh, I'm going to talk about another book uh, that's not related to the topic today. 
All right, this book is by none other than the author that I maybe talk about the most, um, David Graeber, the late David Graeber, um, who was a uh, anthropologist. He passed away only a few years ago, unfortunately. Um, he was an anthropologist, and he was an anarchist. Um, and he's probably one of the most amazing writers I've ever read. Um, I've read, uh, on this podcast, I've talked about probably several of his books. I've read four or five of them. Um, uh, Bullshit Jobs, which I talk about all the time, he wrote. And then uh, Dead, The First 5,000 Years, and then The Dawn of Everything. These are extremely good books. Uh, they will change the way you think. They will not radicalize you into being an anarchist, if that's what you're afraid of. <clears throat> anyway, the, the most recent book I read by him is called The Utopia of Rules on Technology, Stupidity, and the Secret Joys of Bureaucracy. <laughs> which this book is not what you think it's about based on the... Um, title um and it's it's a series of essays but it works out really well as a book <clears throat> it was originally published in 2000, 2013 and it's only 260 pages so <clears throat> basically the short version of this book in a sentence is that bureaucracy which is pervasive in modern society is a stand-in for the stupidity of violence like violence is stupid and so is bureaucracy and it's better that we have a system, a bureaucratic system, rather than a violent system. That's one of the main points. But he talks about a lot of different things in this book. Um, and I cannot cover all the topics. But he does. He, he covered, There's a lot of things covered in this book. <clears throat> so the genius and creative thinking Graver, of Graver is really showcased here. I, I, I rarely read someone who completely turns upside down the narratives and the myths that we hold to be true about our society and culture and politics and economics. In this book, you'll get everything from critiques on the power hierarchy of government and corporations from the interpretation of Harry Potter and the Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> it's really all over the place in this book, and it's a lot of fun and very interesting to read. It's a hodgepodge of stuff, so it's hard to, re to review and put you know this short book in. But it's basically, to really get into it, it's about the drudgery and the necessity of bureaucracy. The main argument is that bureaucracy is ubiquitous. It's everywhere, not not just limited to the government. It's everywhere. It's in corporations and everywhere you go. And it perpetuates the stupidity of systems of violence without the actual violence. The way he frames this really starts making a lot of sense as you read on. He's not advocating for bureaucracy. He doesn't think it's good. He's merely reporting on its reality and necessity. <clears throat> Police officers don't mete out justice or really protect. I mean, yeah, they... they Maybe they do in rare circumstances. They're really just enforcers of rules, which are often arbitrary rules. Basically, police officers are bureaucrats with weapons. And that really, I mean, think about your interactions with police yourself. They're bureaucrats that have guns, and they enforce the rules of their bureaucracy. Uh, free markets actually increase government bureaucracy, which is not something that people really talk about or think about, because they need more rules and regulations to actually maintain the market, which is the paradox of quote-unquote free markets there's nothing efficient or streamlined about a free market it simply it, it simply is a bureaucracy in tandem and collusion with the government for over a hundred years the u.s has been deeply bureaucratic despite its hyper individualistic ideologies <clears throat> most americans don't admit this or even understand this our lives are dictated by rules everywhere often with the immediately immediate threat of violence if we don't comply like, well, that's just a fact of life that we're just used to. We think it's normal. <clears throat> and so what bureaucracy does is it takes something inherently stupid, which is violence, 
and reinstitutes it into a new stupid form, but without direct violence. The rise of financialization um, made bureaucracy this like opaque black magic that even its own practitioners don't really understand. <laughs> you know, financial rules and financial markets. American wealth comes from the speculative investments on other people's debts that are entrenched in incomprehensible and often nonsensical bureaucracy. The state is merely a mechanism to enforce corporatocracy and arbitrary profit extraction. You cannot have one without the other, and they're all complicit in one grand bureaucracy. A really amazing concept explored here is something Graeber calls interpretive labor. Um, which those in, in an underclass or an oppressed class must exercise. And here's what he means. The dominant group, which is often men and traditionally has been white people and is you know, arguably still white people today, easily exercise violence traditionally with impunity, right? Like men being violent toward women. You know, obviously, it's not uh, that is more frowned upon today, but there's still the threat of dominance and violence in homes domestically right but men could with impunity uh, inflict violence on their on their wives we'll say you know back let's say let's just say 100 years ago to make it simple <clears throat> or um during during a you know the era of chattel slavery a slave master could just inflict violence in, with impunity right and there's not intelligence and thought in inflicting violence it's just it's a it's a very raw uh, it's a very raw stupid thing right there's no intelligence behind it there's no thought there's no emotional intelligence behind it so <clears throat> and there's there's zero understanding of the other party the victim party right the the dominant group does not have to understand them so when the threat of violence is always there from the dominant group they don't expend any energy to interpret or understand other people so there is a corruption of creativity of thought in the dominant group if that makes sense so the oppressed group whether it's women or black slaves or today uh you know other oppressed groups to even survive oppressed groups they must interpret social and power dynamics and become adept at understanding emotions and relationships so what people call women's intuition is simply women exercising more interpretive labor than men out of necessity not because they enjoy it not because they have a natural proclivity towards emotional intelligence they do it out of necessity of survival and that is interpretive labor. It's the same phenomenon, like I'm saying, with black people analyzing and understanding white society, where the average white person understands nothing about black culture or black people because they don't have to, because they're the dominant racial group. Incredible concept, interpretive labor. Think about it. It's amazing. <clears throat> Another amazing concept that Graeber explores is that <laughs> all technological advancements promised in like the 1950s and 60s and 70s, like, interstellar space travel and flying cars, et cetera, were never delivered on. Like, none of it. None of it. And he argues, and he, it's a stretch, but he argues that this is because the mechanization and automation of labor has a tendency to free the labor class up, erasing the conditions of labor exploitation and rent-seeking. So mechanization, while it may help a company in the short term by cutting like labor costs, it actually decreases long-term profits because human labor can be exploited way more than robots through their labor. Uh, and also through their consumption, which makes that merry-go-round keep going. Graeber argues that there was a deliberate attempt to slow technological advancement to stop social upheaval and continue labor exploitation, which is a stretch. <clears throat> he says this was meant, this is what was meant when Newt Gingrich said he was a, 
quote, conservative futurists trying to control the disruption of technology. It's, it's a very interesting theory. It's backed by zero evidence, but it's a, it's a fun and interesting discussion. And you will find all sorts of stuff like this in this book. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's a short read. It's easy to read. And it'll just get you thinking about different things, get the juices going in your brain. So like Dave, everything else by David Graeber, I highly recommend this book. It's called Utopia of Rules on Technology, Stupidity, and the Secret Joys of Bureaucracy by David Graeber. Pick it up. Easy read. I, I listened to the audiobook, and I think it was free in, on Audible. I don't think I paid anything for it. I think it was just there for free. Go, go read it. Go listen to it. It's awesome. All right, I think I'll wrap it up. Um, thanks for joining me this week. Uh, I hope to have one up, uh, in, not next week, but uh, but I'm going to be recording more episodes. Um, email me at icudoctorecmo at gmail.com. Uh, follow me on TikTok, icudoctor. And I'm on Instagram, icudoctortiktok. I'm also on threads. Um, that's all I got. Thanks.